Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, at the age of 24, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Since then, I have been on a journey full of challenges, which has led me to ask the question, how do we face up to the challenges in our lives? To help me answer this question, each week I learn from different guests how they faced up to the challenges in their own lives, and perhaps even how they led to opportunities. I hope that by listening, you will be better able to face up to the challenges in your lives so you can live your best life today. This week is a special episode. For one reason, it is happening in Bristol, live, or at least face-to-face. And the second reason why it's a very special episode is that it is with one of the most inspirational people that I know. And if I get a chance to grow old, then this is perhaps the person above all others who I would like to resemble. I would like you to meet Graham Shaw. Now, some of the sharper-eared listeners among you might notice a commonality in our surnames. Graham is my grandfather, and I don't think any uh, grandfather or uh, grandmother is ordinary. However, Graham is pretty close to extraordinary. We're going to get into a bit more of his story very soon, but just to give you a flavour, his early childhood was in the Second World War. He grew up, joined the Navy as a ship's boy, worked his way to become an officer, did sort of rather mundane things like mine clearance and unexploded ordnance disposal. Then he decided to put his feet up by setting up a business, doing a lot of work out in the Middle East, still disposing of bombs, doing anti-piracy. The list really does go on and on. And in fact, it's down to Graham that I speak Arabic as I spent some time out working for him in the Middle East. But as I think you will see, it is Graham's verve and vivacity for life that really sets him apart, even at the sprightly age of 86. This episode will also be in two parts, and in this first part, we are going to discuss Graham's experiences of growing up in the Second World War, including his early bomb disposal experience, whilst also talking about the factors that forced him to grow up very fast. Graham and I also discuss what he thinks about my childhood. In the second half, we'll talk more about Graham's experience uh, during his early time in the Navy and his take on leadership and the challenges facing my very own generation, the Snowflake generation. I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Graham. Graham, it is fantastic to have you on the Facing Up podcast. Thanks so much for joining Well, it's uh, really very much my pleasure, I have to say as well, to have the opportunity to have a discussion with my grandson about parts of my life which he probably doesn't know very much about. Yeah, absolutely. And that is one of the brilliant things about having these sorts of discussions, that it just takes you to areas that you wouldn't otherwise go. And as you know, we're trying to sort of get under the skin of how different people deal with challenges in their lives and I just would love it if you could take us back to the environment in which you grew up, the pre-war, the during the war, post-war years and just give us a bit of a feel for where you started. 
Well, I was uh, five and a half, uh, roughly, uh, when war was declared. So I don't have too much of a pre-war knowledge, apart from, obviously, uh, um, scenes that I can remember with my parents. During the war, though, I have a number of opportunities to uh, uh, be involved in different ways as a schoolboy. And um, we did, of course, live very much, not uh, fearing to be bombed daily or anything like that, because I was not in London, didn't live in London then. But um, we did, in fact, have to be constantly on our guard for paratroopers and for unexpected things going on. Mm. Uh, and this is the way we were brought up. Yeah. Life was relatively safe for a, um, a youngster of my age. Mm. Um, cycling around or something. Cycling around, yeah. and I can remember cycling to school at the age of eight. Today, you just wouldn't, no. you just wouldn't con- took, contemplate that. And this was years. on the road, not pavement. Yes. Um, this, so um, it was um, an interesting time there. Later on, though, when I, we, our family moved into Croydon, south of London, we moved in just before the doodlebugs started. And the these, doodlebugs, those are the sort of the bombs that the Germans dropped? Um, yeah, well, the doodlebugs, in fact, were the first attempt for a jet-powered missile. Mm. And they were launched from mobile missile sites in France and Belgium. And they were filled with just an appropriate amount of fuel. They were pointed in the right direction. From there on, it was the weather that decided, um, quite honestly, where they (laughs) were going to land. Right. It was a very awe-inspiring noise that they produced. A fearful one, actually. Mm. And if you heard the noise coming towards you, you all were ready to dive for cover. If the noise went over you and somebody else was going to get caught up. Mm. But the important thing was when the engine cut out and you knew then you had probably got about 30 seconds of forward flight before the thing crashed. Mm. And I don't know quite how much explosive there was in the in the warhead, but mm. there was a lot. Is that something you were scared of? Yes, it was very scary. Um, the noise of the, of the jet was a, a very eerie sound in the first place and then the cutout Mm. um, everybody if if the noise was still coming towards you and you usually could see them um, oh you could see them in the sky right oh yes you could see them coming in they're below the cloud level usually Mm. Uh, and um, if the noise is still rising and it was coming towards you and it cut out you dive for cover very quickly Mm. Uh, if not it went past you somebody else was going to get caught that wasn't your only experience with explosives, I suppose, from, from a young age. Tell us about uh, what you once brought into the kitchen. Yes, it's, um, even much earlier, nobody had heard of doodlebugs in these days. Um, I found an, a, quite an, a, an attractive lengthy cylinder. Uh, it looks like a bit of aluminium tubing, really. Um, about uh, half a metre, yeah, three quarters of a metre long, okay. uh, with some wings on the back. So I brought it into the kitchen mm. and uh, showed my mother and I said, look, Mum, it actually is, it's, um, it shakes and you've got noise inside. My mother realised this was an incendiary bomb, which I hadn't quite appreciated, mm-hmm. screamed <laughs> and told me to take it out of the house immediately. 
and sent for the air raid warden, warden to come and um, <laughs> do something with it. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose <laughs> warden did. I wasn't allowed to go near it. Right. But um, no, that was my my first involvement with um, ordnance yeah. and the disposal of it. And you didn't have an easy childhood. I'm wondering where you'd like to start with that. There were problems between your, your mother and your father. Well, yes. Um, like a lot of um, uh, families, um, my father uh, was called up. He was in uniform. And um, really, from pretty well the time uh, he um, was uh, joined the army, he was a sapper. Um, Is that like an engineer? Uh, that's an uh, engineering branch of the army. Mm. I didn't see him again, um, apart from a, an occasional um, visit uh, mm. from time to time. It became evident later, um, possibly about a year later, uh, that um, he wasn't going to return to um, our family at the end of the war, mm. so my mum said. And um, uh, I sort of... With, bit concerned about this um, because I had understood that he he hadn't been killed mm. but why should he not return yeah. and of course um, that was the beginning of a split family I'm afraid mm. but that was the way it was we just got on with life you sound awfully pragmatic about it now you're just getting on with life you were what six years old at the time, or no, something? No, I was a bit older than that. Bit, no, yeah. I would be um, eight or nine. Eight or nine. Could you um, process it? Yes. Do you understand um, what had happened? Well, How yes. How did you deal with it? Um, apparently, not very well. Um, uh, it caused quite a problem at school. Um, I can remember um, bursting out into tears uh, at one stage, and obviously, my mother um, had to have um, a word with the head teacher. Which in those days, of course, was quite a problem because it, this just was not done. Mm. Um, you know, um, dads didn't just go off elsewhere with right. others. And um, it, it was a very different thing to today. Yeah. I thought you were going to say bursting out into tears in school wasn't the done thing. But no, interesting that... It wasn't the done thing at school. No, it's a Certainly not a boys' school. Yes. That's something I really want to return to later in this conversation is your remark that you just got on with things and um, perhaps how different generations deal with their challenges in different ways. You ended up joining the Navy, well, applying when you were 14, ended up joining when you were 15. How did that come about? Why did you end up joining the Navy at such a young age? And why the Navy? I had been a mess. I can remember messing around in boats when I was very young mm. uh, with my dad. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Anyway, whatever for, for whatever reason, and there is no family history this way, um, I was very clear in my mind I wanted to go to sea to earn my living when mm -hmm. I grew up. Um, I didn't quite work out how I was going to do that, but that was the background. Mm. And eventually, this became a little bit more serious, certainly when I was 13 plus, at school then. I was doing quite well at school at that stage and it was a very medium um, school, what we called a secondary modern, which was a book work. We had no laboratories or anything. There was no practical work at all in the school um, right. and it was entirely up to the, the masters and mistresses as to how they taught uh, things. Mm. Um, some subjects were well taught, some were mm. not. But I decided that really I did want to go to sea 
And so I was thinking in terms of um, a cadetship uh, in the Merchant Navy. Right. Um, this became became evident that uh, this wasn't going to be possible because there were costs involved. Mm. And like many families during the war, um, money was very tight. Right. And um, this was um, going to cost rather more than uh, could be afforded. Did you appreciate money was tight? Because oh, yes. when I was yes. 13, I, I probably... Mm. I mean, I was very lucky when you know growing up, but also I don't think I had much conception of money at all. I mean, uh, as limited. A gra- as a grandfather observing you, <laughs> uh, I would I would agree with you. Right. You didn't, uh, but that was not unusual for you yeah. know uh, youngsters of your age at the time, yeah. or even later. Feel free to spill more um, beans throughout this conversation, Graham. Um, <laughs> yes. There's there's no reputation on the line right here. That's no. fine. So um, that uh, did yes one did. Uh, know this because um, it was very much a question of um, well no I don't think we'll do that this week we'll wait until next week or until the money had come in at the end of the month or something Mm. like this Mm. yes we were very tight uh, for money in various ways I I remember this um, because Mm. I can remember my mother through various other contacts selling her jewellery and things like that which I thought was a bit you know was unusual um, but apparently it wasn't so unusual, I've learned since then. Mm. Um, you know, one just had to make the best of things. Yeah. And circumstances, you must remember that wartime was one thing, but actually, after the war, uh, life for those of us who were just normal families with young, young children, as it were, growing up, was very much harder than it actually was during the war. Um, right. Actually, you know, if you were bombed out, um, which was the expression we used, being bombed, um, it, life was pretty disastrous. Yes, of course it was. Yeah. Um, but generally speaking, uh, we had ra- good rationing. It was um, there were no um, additions, mm. but it was adequate, generally speaking. Mm. But after the war, there were many times when I can remember that there was minimal amount to put on the table. What Everybody, would a meal have looked like at that point when you said there's not very much to put on the table? What was it? During school, um, it was um, a sandwich mm-hmm. you took, um, which would just be bovril or marmite in the sandwich, um, and an apple, if mm. it was apple season. But sometimes there wasn't any fruit to have. Um, yes, maybe a carrot. It, it, that doesn't sound marvellous today, but it was adequate at the time. Uh, you didn't have many children who were obese. Very, very few. Mm. Um, we were all pretty skinny, yeah. Um, but you know, everybody was the same, so you didn't feel hard done by, right? So but remember that rationing went on to 1952, mm. um, seven years after the war finished, and yeah, longer than the war itself. Uh, longer than the war itself. We were feeding Germany, yeah, and and part of France at one stage. It's interesting that you said you didn't feel hard done by because everyone was the same. Yes. Today, there is so much choice. There is so much gradation in I, you know, school lunches. When I was at the school, I felt hard done by because I had the, the school lunch. But then you see all these people with packed lunches. And you know, some of them just the sandwiches, but some of them are in triangles. Uh, some of them have the sort of the packets of different food, like the pre-made lunches, which for some reason were always kind of thought of as more, more cool. Crackers, pepperamis, bits of fruit. There's a huge amount of hierarchy to, to school lunches now I think about it. 
How important was it that it was the same for everyone? Uh, well, uh, you say it's the same. For, yes, I just said it's the same for everyone. We all knew that that things were difficult. <clears throat> so you know that was the life we'd grown up in. Mm. After all, you know, this was either during the war or after the war, and mm. you just put up with it. It was, it was no question of that. I think that there probably was some form of hierarchy in, in somebody or other who suddenly had got something unusual. But by and large, you know, we all just um, ate our sandwiches. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we, were, that was the way we did it. But I can well remember the very first time I saw a bunch of grapes. Uh, they were white grapes. And um, I think I, I'd saved up some money, and uh, for I think probably sixpence, um, I bought this bunch of grapes from my mum. For your mum? For my mum. Not for yourself? No, for my mum. And I took them home very carefully on my bicycle. <laughs> I'm not sure how many I may have damaged on, <laughs> en route, um, but I'd, I knew what a bunch of grapes were because I'd seen lots of pictures of them. Mm. But I, couldn't, I can't remember actually seeing grapes pre-war. Um, I mm. can remember seeing bananas, and I can remember um, seeing um, uh, other uh, citrus fruit, mm. but I couldn't remember seeing grapes. And One of the things that when I talk with you, Graham, that strikes me so much is how conscientious you were at a, a pretty young age. And one of the things, one of the reasons it seems that you wanted to join up and leave the home was to support the household finances to support your mum. I was wondering where that awareness and selflessness, which I would call selflessness, you might see it quite differently uh, or come from different things, where that came from. I, I, frankly, I, it must have emanated from my parents um, <laughs> in some way or other. My mother was a very determined lady, um, not by today's standards that well-educated. She went to a good girls' school, um, uh, who believed in educating um, young ladies um, for their purpose in life. Um, Which was? Uh, to be eventually to marry and to have children. Uh-huh. Um, uh, very, very broadly. Um, but certainly she was not educated to um, have a career of her own. Um, and she was an extremely good mum, as far as I was concerned. Um, uh, but that was very much an expectation of most girls at that mm. time. Uh, things have changed enormously since then, thank goodness. So uh, my father was um, a go-getter. Uh, so I suspect, you know, I've got him, and so indeed was my mother. You know, mm. um, and for instance, both I, I can remember. Um, uh, some things about my father in my early years. Um, and indeed, you see, I didn't actually re-meet my father until I was 22 or 23 in Australia. 14 years or So I would not him? have seen him for something like 14 years, mm. or something like that, yes. Um, and uh, the one thing, and I say, well, where did I get? I'm coming to that point. Okay. Um, but um, I did meet my father's sister, um, who actually lived, um, married, uh, lived in Shoreham by Sea, um, and with my cousins, of course, there. And we, we did, in fact, my sister and I uh, did go down to Shoreham to see them every now and then. And this, for us, coming from Croydon, um, was you know, a huge uh, away. 
uh, mm-hmm. holiday for two or three days or three or four days or possibly even a week um, down with my cousins. And they right. were super girls. We've mm-hmm. always got on extremely well. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I can remember my aunt, my brother's sister, saying to me, do you know, Graham, you were walking down the passage then and you might have been my brother at that age. Mm. She said, you know, you walk the same as him, you hold yourself the same as him, you blow your nose the same as he does, and you cough and clear your throat in the same way. She (laughs) said, you can't possibly have copied him, Mm. um, really. Um, It's in your your makeup. makeup. And she said, I couldn't believe how how much you were just my brother uh, as I've seen you around Mm. and um, that's always stuck with me so you know like it or not um, it certainly I wasn't deliberately or even inadvertently copying my father because he wasn't around so it was within me Mm. So I think it has to be a combination of, you know, from my father and my mother. Right. It's interesting you're not talking about, you're very much citing the nature, but less so the nurture side of the the, the debate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, um, I mean, it it was very evident to me as time was getting on, and by this time I would be um, 13 probably, Mm. and it became increasingly evident that life was getting actually harder and harder for, mm. for my mother um, to make ends meet and keep the home going. And um, uh, I felt that you know, the best way I could do it was to get myself a, a job as soon as possible. And I still had this urge and inkling to wanting to go to sea. Yeah. And so I think I probably um, raised the question of, of going to sea and my mother was looking at this. And she certainly consulted her brother my uncle, yeah. um, who was um, actually um, a barrister um, working in the city of London at the time. Um, my grandfather was also was a barrister who mm-hmm. worked in the high courts. Um, but I, I showed no sign whatsoever of going into the law. Right. And so yeah. I think that was sort of discounted okay. <laughs> very early on. Um, but since there was no particular... Um, uh, reason to follow my father's footsteps into business because he then was in business but he was in another country um, mm. the other side of the world in Australia um, in Australia um, you know and in those days don't forget we just didn't travel as we do now mm. um, in fact I never um, apart from my movement in the Navy I actually didn't leave the, the shores of uh, of this country England um, until my um, uh, until I was married and our honeymoon was in the, um, uh, in the Channel Islands. That was an enormous step forward. Wow. That's yeah, I totally mean, uh, different. The, abs- nobody had, uh, going, going to the Channel Islands? My goodness me, you know, you're really a flip yeah. to the front. And really? we were. Um, so anyway, <laughs> <You're getting laughs> quite impossible to understand today. If, if we told Graham, or you were told at the age of 15 or 20 that you would at one point in your life be shuttling back and forth between the UK and the Middle East on an almost weekly basis at points, mm. how would you have responded? Well, it would have been, it would have been just an impossibility, I think. Uh, don't forget, um, flights in those days only flew, um, passenger flights only flew a few hundred miles. It would have been several stops. Um, and even in, because um, I actually, in 19... 
the 1960s, um, I flew out with my family to the Far East um, in one of the um, early jet aircraft that the RAF were, were running. Mm. Um, it was um, four stops and took basically 24 hours yeah. to get to Singapore. Mm. I think it's a bit more. I, bit about, I think it was about 30 hours um, actually uh, flying time, plus yeah. um, three or four hour stops for fueling and one thing and another. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> things have moved on a long way. Yeah. So go back. Long and the short of it is, um, we investigations were made as to whether I would be suitable to go uh, as a cadet for the Merchant Navy. Yeah. And um, uh, we just... That cost too much. That was going to cost... There were certain fees um, yeah. for that. Um, were there other avenues? At that stage, uh, that seemed to be it. Um, and so I was rather down, um, you know, rather down about that. But shortly afterwards, actually, there was um, an exhibition of some sort and this would have been probably in mid-1949. And um, amongst them was a, a Navy stand. So um, I went across and thought I would inquire, mm. which I did. And the um, chief petty officer there um, explained to me what I could do and so on and so forth. And I remember very much saying to my mother, uh, Mum, look, um, you know, I could join the Navy because um, it doesn't cost anything and I could just go there and um, if I pass the medical test. But the flip side to this is that you had looked at becoming going to the officer training school in Dartmouth. Uh, yes, I had. Which yes. did cost money. So this wasn't going to become an officer. This was quite a different path yeah. into the Navy. Yes, I, I think it was my, um, my uncle again who probably made the inquiry. I didn't. Um, about going to Dartmouth, mm. um, but it became evident that although um, there were there were costs in, in associated with that, and they were costs that were going to make life very difficult for everybody, and mm. uh, I just didn't want that. Right from the beginning, my on entry, my intention was to command my own ship. Whether it was in the Merchant Navy or the Royal Navy, at mm. that stage, didn't matter to me. Right. Um, subsequently, of course, um, it was very much doing it for the Royal Navy. Yeah. So, yes, I, I joined the Navy. Um, you didn't um, set your ambitions low. Where, where did that come from? Oh, no. Like, well, oh. I had no idea where it came from, but that was my intent. Right, okay. Because I can remember um, in my first couple of days having joined the, the Navy at a place called um, HMS Ganges. Was that a boat as well? Uh, Ganges used to be um, um, a sailing vessel. Um, it was a shore establishment with 1,500 boys, all the age of um, late 14s, 15s and 16s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, was, that was where the Navy trained its boy seamen. Right. And... Um, I can remember saying to, in answer to a question, the division officer will, you know, okay, sure, what do you want to do? And I said, command my own ship, sir. <clears throat> and so he was somewhat taken aback. I can remember his name was Lieutenant Wilson. And um, <laughs> uh, I think he then um, kept an eye on me. But certainly he sent for me um, some weeks later and um, said, right, well, now I'm going to be very hard on you. Um, if you want to command your own ship, you've got a lot to do mm. and you've got to show me that you can do this, this, this and this. For me, that was, um, that was something, to, that was a challenge. It sounds like that was quite an atypical thing to say um, as a boy. Probably. Boy Prob oh, yes. Uh, don't forget, um, I joined with an awful lot of young 
men, teenage boys we were, some of whom could barely write or read. Mm. Now, there was a minimal standard for both, Mm -hmm. which we had to pass Mm. to to be accepted. But um, obviously, I flew through that element of it. Mm. Um, Some struggled. Mm. So the, the disparity in education was very evident even at that stage. Right. My education was not good and by today's standard it was very not poor, but it was it was well at the at the bottom end of uh, of what anybody would accept today. Yeah. Did you fit in with your classmates? Um, probably not in the slightest. <laughs> no, I can't think of any I mean I very soon knuckled down and I, I know, right from the beginning I knew that I, I was, it was this was going to be difficult. Mm. Um, uh, you know, there were 20 of us um, all bunching together. Um, we had a senior boy in charge of us, and we were told we had to obey him, or else we were going to, you know, we were going to be in trouble. Right. And um, so, the message was received loud and clear um, by the first two or three people who basically didn't do that. And, or do you um, get like a whip of the belt or a fisty uh, No, or? the boy wasn't allowed to do that, but the instructor was allowed. Uh, he, the instructor walked around with a cane. In those days, um, that was um, it, you wouldn't be laid out to be caned, but you would get um, a, a smack across the legs or, or something like that. The instructor was used the cane quite a bit just to remind you, ooh, that hurt. <laughs> yes, well... Don't do it again. Right. Um, how do you, you look back on caning? It was part of life. And, and that right. happened. Happened at school. I mean, um, I was caned at school uh, for something that I didn't do. Um, but that was the way it was. Was it an effective tool? In its, um, in its time, it probably was. Yes. Mm. It was something that happened. And mm. you just had to put up with it. Certainly, as um, you know, girls are not caned. Um, certainly not uh, in, in my time. Um, boys were. You know, you, you hear of sort of public school canings and they were probably a lot worse than, because I never went to public school. Mm. Um, and, and so, um, you know, things weren't quite that way. Right. So you were saying your your first big challenge was on the HMS Ganges, this training ship. This establishment. Called, establishment. Yes, yes. Known in naval terms as a stone frigate. A stone frigate, <laughs> one that doesn't sail very well. One that doesn't sail very well. Right. So, yeah, my challenges there were really very easy um, to sort of <laughs> identify. Do what you're told to do, mm. do it well, mm. and do it with um, with enthusiasm. Mm. And that shows through right through everything, whether it's um, sailing on the football field, on the drill. Uh, and there was one very good point, actually, uh, the, the epitome in one's division. In each division, there were probably five or six messes of 20 people. So we're mm. talking in terms of 100, 120 d- divisions and 15, right. um, 12 or 15 divisions. Mm-hmm. But the epitome in the division was to be a member of the guard. And you had to right. be really smart and you had to be absolutely A1 with your drill. Right. I got myself into the guard at very early stage okay. and you were looked up to. Um, if right. you're a member of the guard. So is that how you became one of the cool kids? So that's like? how I, yes, yes. I mean, and I was then immediately sort of from there on, I was identified as somebody that was was going to go places. Wants to succeed. Yeah. 
I actually did there um, scholastically, if you like, because we had a certain amount of schooling mm. as well as practical training. Mm, mm. I um, did fairly well at that, got Go a on. number of prizes for that. Um, but I had to be careful not to be lording it over others. Mm. Otherwise, it would have been taken out of me very, very quickly. Yes. And um, I was sufficiently savvy to be humble. Down, down. Or try to be humble about these yeah. things. Um, but I really enjoyed it. And mm. from the time I um, found myself with a pair of white gaiters, which meant that I was a leading boy okay. and was able to be in charge of others and the class and the occasions, it was from there on, I really enjoyed my life. And I can't, it's such a foreign uh, existence to my home yeah. life. Um, I'm surprised that I was, but I was. It sounds like that gave you leadership and responsibility from quite a young age, if you were then... Sure. Oh, yes. Um, Probably before I was 16, uh, I was in charge of others mm. and um, made responsible for their misbehavior. Right. And I would be punished um, mm. by doubling around the playground yeah. if I hadn't taken charge properly. I didn't take to that too too well. Yes, when someone else screws up. <laughs> because, of course, I would then have to exert my pressures mm. on, the mis- on those who were playing me Miscreant, up. Miscreant, yes. Yes. I'm very intrigued at this point, Graham, to ask the question, how do you see my childhood? You have a, a pretty good perspective on it. You, you knew kind of what I did when I did it. Probably got more dirty secrets about me than I even know myself, given I didn't have my memory for the first five years. My childhood and the childhood of a lot of my peers and later generations are so different to yours. What do you make of the environment, the, the opportunities that... I had, do you feel, was I coddled? I think you were well looked after. Both your parents really adored you and your brother. Um, wanted, obviously, the best for you both. Mm. I can recall at one stage you did have some difficulties at school when you were probably 10 or 11-ish, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because you weren't settling as well as you should have done. But you found mm. your you found your basis then. And once you'd found that, mm. you, you, you then rocketed ahead. Um, I will recall... Um, for both you and indeed your brother John, the your the scout presentation that you gave. What would, what was it called? Oh, the gang show. The gang show. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was you know, and I think that brought you on as well, mm. hugely. Yeah, because that was the sort of you know, musical medley of things. Yeah. In the you could do what drone. you wanted, and you could do it to excess. Yes, and it also didn't matter if you didn't do it very well. It was a spectacle rather than... Yes, um, it was, but it was something that um, uh, certainly as a grandparent, your, your grand, granny and I you know, really enjoyed um, watching this yeah. and, and, and listening to your, um, you know, your own enthusiasm mm. um, about it. Mm. But also... Um, thing. So, um, no, I think you, you certainly uh, had an enormous amount of enthusiasm. Mm. Now, where did you get that from? Um, I think you get that from your parents as well, mm. because they're both enthusiastic. Grandparents as well. And through, from the grandparents, yes. Um, the granny and, and I are both enthusiasts in mm. our different ways. Mm. Um, see, your grandmother was an engineer yes. um, and um, electronics engineer. And what did your dad do? Quite remarkable. He, he's yeah. an electronics engineer. Yes. <laughs> 
straight, yeah, straight away. Which I, I never was. Yeah. Um, I wish I had been, and if mm. I had had my life again, I would certainly have gone that route. And you'd have been very good. And I would have, um, but you know, I just am a naturally, let's say naturally, I, I do think in those ways, I just was never trained yes. uh, adequately to be able to understand yeah. that. And when you look at my childhood or the you know, childhood of uh, John or uh, your other grandchildren, do you see things that we lacked that, um, in terms of we weren't forced to perhaps take responsibility and, and develop? Yes, I do. Um, I, I see this as uh, not, not that seriously because it has to be taken in the context of of the world in which you were brought up in mm. and what was happening in society at that time. Mm. But I um, I did see that you um, did assume that your parents were going to be fair and able to um, pick up the pieces if things didn't go entirely right. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, knowing that obviously I'd only got one parent, yeah. I, I did try to look after my mother... <laughs> <laughs> which sounds rather peculiar, um, <laughs> but I did feel a duty to mm. try and look after my mother and sister. Mm. Now, you know, as both ladies, that was, of course, part of what we, as a young, as I, as a young man, mm. would have been expected to do. More so today, than the, the sexes are much more equal, and mm. so today, even in, in your childhood, mm. much more equal yeah. than, than in my time. Yeah. And it, I, it was always... Graham, look after your sister. I, from an early stage, I would be looking after my sister and mm. make sure she was okay. Whether it's a question of falling over or, you know, and hurting herself yeah. or making sure that we got through the crowd together by holding hands or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. But I was, that was in, endured right from the beginning. Yeah. You were saying you could see that if I screwed up or, you know, perhaps threw my toys out the pram, mum and dad would pick up the pieces. Was there a, an occasion in your life where you where it became very clear that there was going to be no one to pick up the pieces but you? Was there an event that really brought that home to you? Difficult to answer that. I'm sure I threw stuff out of my pram, literally and metaphorically. <laughs> I can't fortunately remember that. <laughs> I suspect that, well, in fact, yes, I do know that uh, my father took a very dim view if I didn't do exactly as I was told mm, mm. and um, made it very clear to me, uh, probably by smacking, although I can't actually remember him smacking me, mm. um, but it was done those days, mm. it was, yeah. that, uh, and indeed, I'm sure my mother smacked me. It was part of training of children and you learned you know, not to indulge your parents that way. So it was very much you just did not allow yourself to get to a point where someone else would have to pick up the pieces mm. because by and large, there wasn't anybody else to do so. And um, I think from the age of certainly 12, I, I was made, it was made very clear that, uh, you know, I was growing into a young man and I had to do this. So you learned, you did grow up much more quickly. Yeah. Do you think that has adverse consequences as probably, well? Probably, yes. I think probably it did, because I certainly frequently conscious that I am a very have, have very limited ability to think out of the box, 
Um, it's not what I expected you to say. No, Do maybe you... not. But um, you know, very much, you know, the the way of life uh, was fairly, let's say, regimented, but it was fairly staid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm very conscious today that um, I don't think out of the box very easily. I have to take charge of myself and say, right now, let's think out of this one. So yes. I'm very much a person of routine. Mm. Once a routine works, that's where it stays for a very long time. Right. And but, you've probably noticed that yeah. um, in various yes. ways. Oh, well, yeah, no, you, um, well, you definitely have your habits. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I remember when we were, uh, I, I joined you out in um, the Emirates and each morning we'd start with that hot water and we'd squeeze in half a lime and we'd watch the sort of oh, sun yes. come up over yeah. the, uh, the mountains. Sun, uh, mountains there, yeah. yes. Excuse us for our reminiscing. That was the first part of my conversation with Graham. In the second half, we talk about how Graham developed through his time at the Navy, dealing with the challenges that he faced, his take on leadership, and the Snowflake Generation. I hope you can join us for part two. <laughs>